Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, good morning, or good afternoon, everyone, wherever and whenever this may find you. My name is Aicha Chubukchu. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and co-director of LSE Human Rights at the London School of Economics and Political Science. It's a pleasure to welcome you to our annual Human Rights Day lecture at LSE, and a great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Noura Erekat. Uh, Before we proceed, first allow me to extend warm thanks to colleagues at LSE Human Rights and the Department of Sociology, in particular Sara Salem, Mai Taha, Mahwish Ahmad, and Fran Tonkins for their commitment in making this event possible. We are honored and thrilled indeed to host Dr. Noura Erekat for our Human Rights Day lecture today, which was delivered by uh, Professor Sayla Ben-Habib of Yale University last year, which some of you will remember. Now, Dr. Erekat's work as a scholar, editor, and public intellectual will require no introduction for many of you. Nevertheless, let me say a few words to introduce her for those who are are going to witness her brilliance for the first time today. Dr. Erekat is a human rights attorney, associate professor in Africana Studies and the program in criminal justice at Rutgers University, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Religious Literacy, Literacy Project at Harvard Divinity School. Dr. Erekat is the author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine, which was published in 2019 by Stanford University Press, which received uh, high praise and I must say awards too for uh, this brilliant work, which includes the Palestine Book Award and the Bronze Medal for the Independent Publishers Book Award in Current Affairs and for Foreign affairs, in current events and foreign affairs. Dr. Erekat, in addition to her work as a scholar, has served as legal counsel for a congressional subcommittee in the US House of Representatives, as legal advocate for the Badil Resource Center for Palestine, Palestinian Refugee and Residency Rights, and as national organizer of the US campaign to end the Israeli occupation. Dr. Erekat is co-founding editor of Jadelia and an editorial board member of the Journal of Palestine Studies. She has also produced a number of documentaries, including Gaza in Context and Black Palestinian Solidarity, which I will be showing in my class this year. As a public intellectual, she has also appeared on the media extensively, including on CBS News, CNN, Fox News, and NPR, among many other media uh, outlets. Uh, the title of Dr. Erika's Human, Human Rights Day lecture this year is Dismantling the Apartheid of Our Time, the Palestinian Liberation Movement as an Anti-Racist Struggle. Now, uh, I would like to note that this event 
is being audio recorded and broadcasted live over social media. Barring technical difficulties, we will soon make the recording available as video and podcast. For Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is whatever you would like, but we suggest LSE Human Rights Day. After Dr. Erika's lecture, which will last for about 45 minutes, I will open up the floor to the audience towards what I hope will be an engaging collective discussion, which will last for another 40, 45 minutes. Normally, we would then move towards a reception to honor Dr. Erika, but given our new norms, that will have to wait for another year. Uh, and now, after much anticipation, please join me in welcoming Dr. Erika to LSE, even if virtually, to deliver our annual Human Rights Day Lecture of 2021. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Aisha Shubukshu, um, for a very kind and generous introduction. Thank you to the LSE Human Rights Program, as well as the LSE Sociology Program, and to the audience here today. This is definitely an honor. I wish that I could be with you. Um, in addition to the fact that it's a personal honor for me to be able to deliver this um, lecture and to share the legacy of um, the Palestinian intellectual tradition in theorizing um, racism, um, in particular application to the Palestinian condition, I just want to note that it's, it's, it's quite an achievement to be able um, to, to center Palestinian human rights uh, within the academy without great controversy. That in and of itself is the result of tireless advocacy and efforts on behalf of generations of Palestinians now seven decades and counting. And so I am honored to continue that legacy, that tradition, and hope that this builds a bridge to a future of even um, more uh, mundane appearances that are not uh, no longer deemed controversial. So um, thank you for that. Um, as um, Dr. Shubukshu um, intimated, this lecture is to discuss the apartheid of our time, and particularly considering the Palestinian um, struggle for freedom as an anti-racist struggle. Much of this work is based on scholarship that is already published and available, as well as forthcoming scholarship, including uh, works, uh, co-authored co work um, by my colleague, Professor and Dr. John Reynolds. Um, and so you can also find references that, uh, to this work on our academia.edu page for references. Okay, with that, let me share my screen in what is now our Zoom tradition. Here we are. Um, let me minimize this. Can I, okay. Can you see this okay? All right, wonderful. So in April 2021, Human Rights Watch and Beit Salem sent shockwaves, well, April 2021 specifically Human Rights Watch, but together with Beit Salem sent shockwaves across the human rights community and political circles alike. When it published a report accusing Israel of the crimes of apartheid as well as persecution. The report built on decades of the intellectual work and political advocacy of Palestinian scholars and Palestinian advocacy organizations, notably the Human Rights Watch report diverges, however, from those legacies in significant ways. In particular, the Human Rights Watch and Beit Salem approach is concerned with governance. 
It is predicated on Israel's opposition to establishing a Palestinian state and arrives at the present as an unintended outcome. The other approach is a decolonial one and has been mapped out by Pal the Palestinian intellectual tradition. It grapples head on with Jewish Zionist settler sovereignty and insists that Israel's racial nature is rooted in ideology and not circumstance. In this talk, I will explore the Palestinian intellectual legacies that predate the 2021 apartheid findings with a particular emphasis on the 1975 UN General Assembly Resolution 3379, declaring Zionism as a form of racism and racial discrimination to consider an alternative trajectory of the Palestinian freedom struggle as one against racism. In doing so, the talk will highlight the outstanding controversies among those who agree who that Israel oversees an apartheid regime and will also consider the implications of charging with is, uh, Israel with apartheid at an international tribunal. So here is um, <laughs> a nerdy roadmap of the talk to come. Um, I'll begin by, you, so, so most of this conversation that's happened in the way that it's been emphasized specifically within the legal um, scholarship is on the juridical and empirical analysis of Israeli apartheid. Rather than end there, I'm going, I'm going to begin there, right? Because that, let's just settle that question. This is not an issue. I'll then move on to, you know, the, the assumption that be, because Israel did not establish a Palestinian state, because it did not circumscribe Zionist settler sovereignty within the 1967 or the borders or the green line, it therefore becomes an apartheid state. Of course, in contradistinction from the Palestinian intellectual tradition, which has insisted that Zionism in and of itself is um, racist, not just as a part of forming racial discrimination, but is a racist ideology. And so I'll be presenting some of, of those findings and how we see them manifest specifically and debated at the United Nations um, during the debate on Resolution 3379 um, in the fall of 1975. Then I'll loop back. So see how we this roadmap begins in the present, heads us, you know, stepping a little bit back uh, towards the torpedoing of the Palestinian state, goes back historically, but then back into the present of how then since, especially since the collapse of Oslo, how has that collapse also established a road back to a pointed critique of Zionism using legal analysis as a way to scale the fortress that Oslo built around Zionism as a concept fortified and, and protected from critique, bringing us into you know, the landmines that we experience today is anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism, why or why not, very much highlighting that these are not new debates, but actually ones that are resurrected, that have historically been settled, that we are grappling with once again on new grounds. I'll end with kind of the horizon. What are the outstanding issues regarding race and what are the utility of legal strategies? So let's begin with what we seemingly know in the apartheid discussion. Here we have a map of the partition plan in 1947. So this would be the 1947 lines, then the 1967 line or the 1948 armistice lines in the center. 
And then obviously the non-contiguous territories that are known as the Bantustans that today make up the West Bank, um, which not just Netanyahu, um, and, uh, but also Naftali Bennett have basically said that even in this discontiguous formation, there will never be a Palestinian state but they will continue to pursue a policy of containment. And basically what we've seen laid out since the 1978 Middle East peace process between Israel and Egypt, consecrated in 1979, again resurrected in, in Oslo in um, uh, the Declaration of Principles in 1993 of what will be Palestinian autonomy or our um, reservations or Bantustans. Now, this is, this is what we know um, geographically because apartheid is not only legal, social, political, but it is geographic in that it establishes these, um, uh, ge uh, these spatial separations. But here I want to point you to the juridical. And this is what uh, Badil, the Legal uh, Resource Center for Refugee and Residency Rights um, submitted to the Committee for the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination in 2012, where it went beyond merely the, you know, the two, two legal systems of the military legal system in the West Bank and Gaza, and then the civil system within Israel. It went to the core of the matter to, to demonstrate that the bifurcation between Jewish nationality and Israeli citizenship throughout all of Israel and the Palestinian territories, the entire territory under Israel's singular jurisdiction from the Mediterranean Sea to the River Jordan establishes a singular apartheid regime tantamount to apartheid um, condemned under Article 3 of the Convention for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. So to just walk you through this, what Badil asserted in 2012 is that the apartheid regime is predicated on this bifurcation of Jewish nationality and Israeli citizenship because within Israel there is no such thing as an Israeli national. The law of return of 1950 defines um, a Jewish national as someone born of a Jewish mother or has become converted to Judaism and is not a member of any other religion. The law of return extraterritorialized Jewish nationality and conferred exclusive rights to Jewish nationals to enter Israel, to obtain citizenship, to settle anywhere within Israel's jurisdiction, including the West Bank settlements. The legal framework of Jewish nationality effectively affords Jewish persons anywhere in the world more rights than the Palestinians whose presence preceded Israel's establishment, including those who were not exiled and became citizens of the state. Subsequently, the Nationality Law of 1952, better understood as the Citizenship Law, because the law affords automatic citizenship to Jewish nationals while denying citizenship and residency rights to Palestinians who were driven out, repealed Palestinian, the Palestinian Citizenship Order of 1925 and resulted in the de facto denationalization of the entire Palestinian population. This rendered stateless the Palestinian refugees driven from their homes in the 1948 war, as well as those resident in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza. The law of return together with the nationality law established a tiered order that distinguishes between Israel's population who are both nationals and citizenship from its Christian and Muslim Palestinian population who are citizens only. This is within Israel. 
So that there you can see that um, in the center under citizenship, that even among, this is how Palestinians are divided, whereas there's a singular category of Jewish nationals um, who then expand their rights as citizens, but have all those rights afforded to them by virtue of their nationality. Um, again, in distinction from the Palestinians who are not citizens, um, not Palestinian citizens, and who, who, who do become citizens of Israel are still denied many rights because they are never eligible for Jewish nationality than in distinction from those Palestinians in East Jerusalem and those Palestinians um, in Gaza and those Palestinians in the West Bank and those Palestinians in exile. Um, Adala, the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel maintains an ongoing database of laws and currently totaling 65 laws that prima facie discriminate Palestinians on the basis of national belonging. Israel's binary system enables the state to achieve its stated goal of maintaining a significant Jewish majority, even in the face of natural population growth. In particular, the bifurcation facilitates a policy of forced population transfer. The most blatant pillar of that policy is Israel's denial of Palestinian refugees, totaling some 5.7 million, the right to return to their homes and lands, which the state frames as an existential threat to the country. Other laws include the Ban on Family Reunification, 2003, the Admissions Committee Law, 2011, the 2010 Amendment to the Negative Development Authority, and the 2009 Israel Land Administration of Law. Forced population transfer, together with other discriminatory policies also predicated on the exclusive right to Jewish nationality, violate Articles 2C and 2D of the Apartheid Convention. This brings us to a very elaborate legal analysis of the violation of the apartheid convention this chart is one piece of it there have been multiple reports on this topic including um, the hundreds page report submitted to esqua by richard Falk and virginia tilly including the human rights watch report including the multiple reports by the palestinian advocacy organizations like al-haq as well as um, what was submitted to the russell tribunal in the tribunal in south africa and so on and so forth but let us come back to the 1973 apartheid convention that declared for the first time racism in the form of apartheid as a crime of humanity. Now, one of the ways that we've conceived of racism in the present is to create um, a, some sort of historical revisionism that it was a primarily a domestic problem within South Africa, that this was about racial discrimination practiced by one state that was so obscene in a way that obscures the way that this kind of racism is actually um, one, um, international in scope and not limited to South Africa as much was declared by the Committee for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination in 1995, but two and more significantly, that this wasn't just a problem of racism, but apartheid was a colonial project, right? It's that international dimension that gets lost in the domestic domestication of all racial analyses, especially in the present, as we conceive of racism as a governance issue to be overcome by countries that are going to achieve their full potential um, in overcoming it through some sort of juridical um, resolution. But South African apartheid was fundamentally, 
fundamentally a settler colonial project intent on removing Black Africans, albeit internally, as opposed to the external displacement characterizing Palestinian removal, expropriating their lands, concentrating them into small territories known as Bantustans, and supplanting their indigenous sovereignty with Afrikaner sovereignty. African apartheid, South African apartheid was far more than the white supremacist project we remember it for, contained with domestic borders. Its, its proponents also understood it as a movement for Afrikaner self-determination determination against British oppression on a land without a people, meaning uh, no, no recognized juridical people with the right to self-determination. The connection between Zionism and apartheid reflects in part their common origins within the crucible of British empire. Richard P. Stevens highlights that the group of politicians responsible for the successful adoption of the Balfour Declaration in 1917, designating Palestine as a site of Jewish settlement, namely Lord Balfour, Lord Milner, Joseph Chamberlain, General Jan Smuts, and Lord Selborne were also central to the passage of the South African Act of Union in 1909. At the core of both initiatives was the advancement of Western imperial interests in the African continent, as well as the Middle East. European Zionist leaders like Chaim Wiseman and Theodore Herzl understood this well as they appealed to Turkish, British, and German leaders for the right to settle in Palestine, arguing that settlement in Palestine would, quote, form a portion of a rampart of Europe against Asia, an outpost of civilization as opposed to barbarism, end quote. Zionists continue to argue that Zionism is also a national project of Jewish self-determination, thus distinguishing it from any racist project. However, as articulated by Abdin Jabara very clearly in 1979, quote, there's only one conditional rule attached to the right of national liberation. No man or people may achieve national liberation at the expense of another people. Given this fact, any movement, including Zionism, which seeks to solve the national problem of one people at the expense of another, may not proper, properly be called a movement for national liberation. While the international community slowly and belatedly moved to isolate uh, South, the South African regime. And I, and I have to emphasize here that overcoming South African apartheid was not, you know, easy kumbaya, but in fact was quite entrenched. Um, the U.S.'s issuance of vetoes to protect a state, particularly to protect the um, um, apartheid regimes in South Africa and Southwest Africa, now known as Namibia, is only second to the issuance of its vetoes to protect Israel. But France, the UK also issued veto, um, also issued its votes to not vetoes, but its votes to protect the South African apartheid regime, urging that the process be more civilized, that there not be such reactionary movements, and, and also oppose these grassroots movements to end the apartheid of that time. Right? So it too was an entrenched battle. Israel sustained, however, as, as boycott gained traction across the world, Israel sustained um, the South African apartheid economy through the development of a robust arms industry, a covert arms industry. The South African government regarded Israel as a fellow country under siege, quote, situated in a predominantly hostile world inhabited by dark peoples, end quote. In 1973, the UN General Assembly condemned the, quote, unholy alliance between Portuguese colonialism, South African racism, Zionism and Israeli imperialism. Two years later, 
The UN would condemn Zionism as a form of racism and racial discrimination in resolution 3379, placing it squarely within the agenda of the decade against racism originally conceived to dismantle apartheid, African apartheid, and, and I'll get back to that. But here's the detour that takes place. The international community achieved the mandate of dismantling apartheid in South Africa within the span of two decades. But at the very moment of South African and Namibian liberation, Zionist settler colonization and apartheid found a new lifeline in the Oslo peace process. So let's move to that. Now, what I wanna show you here is actually, if we actually go back to this map. So the idea was that Oslo, if we could, if Zionist settler sovereignty could just be contained within the 1967 border and a Palestinian state could be established on the West Bank in Gaza, the idea was that there would be international sanction for whatever discrimination, um, for whatever displacement of refugees to normalize those violences within um, Israel as established up until um, the, the establishment of the 1949 armistice lines in March 1949. That was the, the idea. This goes back into the drafting history of UN Sec uh, Security Council Resolution 242. I'm happy to, to answer questions about that. Here's what's significant about this, is that Israel had that opportunity to preserve its Zionist settler sovereignty, but it, it single-handedly torpedoed the opportunity to do so in the following ways. This is what it created of what would have been um, the West Bank. And instead of some you know, 20 non-contiguous Bantustans or reservations, however you wanna describe them, the blue land masses are area C. These are jurisdictional categories that were created by the peace process. Checkpoints are an invention of the peace process. Um, this part, the part um, that you, I don't know if you can see, Mike, uh, you can't. Um, the blue part on the easternmost border, the Jordan Valley, is 30, um, some 30% um, of um, the West Bank. And that is what has already been declared de facto annexed and was going to be de jure annexed under the Trump uh, administration, but for the resistance of the international community. But the de facto annexation remains. Um, here we have that Israel increased its settler population from 200,000 to 600,000 in the West Bank, and it built the annexation wall that runs primarily into the West Bank and confiscates another 13% of the territory. As I said, it oversees the de facto annexation, not only of the Jordan Valley, but all of Area C or 60% of the West Bank, and has stated explicit expansion, um, uh, intention of de jure annexation, it's declared sovereignty over East Jerusalem, where it prohibits Palestinian travel and presence between the West Bank and Gaza. It securitized the two million uh, person population in the Gaza Strip and continues a policy of forced population transfer to undermine Palestinian cohesion in order to maintain a Jewish national majority. Beyond that, here we have uh, the creation of yet more security technology to, to circumscribe Gaza that you know fits into an entirely different discussion, which I'm happy to in, entertain in the Q&A. But I want to end by showing that this form of removal, concentration, and dispossession of Palestinians also exists within Israel proper, where Israel continues a settlement policy um, directed not only at um, the Palestinians in the West Bank, um, today, but also the Palestinians in the south of Israel or the Naqab, the Negev Desert. Israel has made clear 
to the world, what Palestinians have long known is that it wants the land without the people and wants to remain the sole source of authority from the river to the sea. The Human Rights Watch report concluding that Israel oversees an apartheid regime is, is more of an acknowledgement than a revelation of its existence. And it continues the rich line of resources and intellectual um, offerings that Palestinians has made. Even the title's report, A Threshold Crossed, reflects that Israel has removed any plausible deniability of its intention to remain the sole sovereign and at best to offer Palestinians the opportunity to govern themselves in autonomous zones, equivalent to North American reservations in Canada, as well as the United States, as well as South African homelands, the latter which were condemned as quote, white minority domination aimed at possessing the African people of South Africa, their inalienable rights in 1976, but in the case of Palestine are seen as a pathway to peace. At issue in 2021, is not whether Israel oversees an apartheid regime, but whether the international community is willing to acknowledge it and take responsibility for its dismantlement. The obstinate refusal to do so reflects a commitment to Zionist settler sovereignty as the optimal solution to combating anti-Jewish bigotry, as well as an often explicit expectation that Palestinian life is expendable and well worth the cost of that endeavor. Under the liberal framework, Israel became an apartheid state. It was a dream, a Zionist dream that became a Frankenstein, right? Um, but this would be a misreading of the situation as it assumes that the problem is one of governance rather than is, um, ideology. Israel did not become a discriminatory regime. It is defined by that discrimination. This is not the unintended outcome, but is precisely the outcome we should have expected and Palestinians have been showing us um, will become the outcome. And a return to the Palestinian uh, intellectual tradition will demonstrate as much. So here I have a crude periodization of that intellectual tradition that shows that between 1948 and 1967, Palestinian literature on this topic over one again and again demonstrates that Zionism is a form of racism. It is It forms internal colonization and exclusion. This is writers like Fayez Sayyid, Hassan Saab, um, um, and others uh, that I've not, uh, Sabri Jirias, um, and others that you can find actually in the pages of the Journal of uh, Palestine Studies. And post-1967, when we see this dual system applied, that's when this critique becomes even more popular and acceptable because of the establishment of a military regime and a civilian regime. Since 1993, we clearly see the autonomous zones geographically and what um, analysts have increasingly called the Bantan Tusinization of Palestinian territory, yet another period of, of uh, articulating an apartheid framework. And from 2000 to the present, we have seen a walk back to a critique of Zionism to scale the Oslo fortress in the ashes of Oslo, which I argue um, have de facto collapsed since 2001. And yet the farce of it continues, we'll discuss that. So I want to, th this tradition is quite rich. What I want to do is just walk us through that first period, right? Because it's what lays the groundwork for all the decades to come. And it's in fact what lays the groundwork for the debate at the United Nations in 1975. So let me go back now to the drafting history of 3379. 
That resolution was introduced in the third committee at the 29th General Assembly. The third committee is responsible for social, humanitarian, and cultural issues and was continuing its work, its decade for action to confront racism and racial discrimination, what I'll describe as the decade against racism. African states initiated the decade um, in 1972 to target apartheid in South Africa. Participating states, however, said that the mandate should be expanded to target racism, apartheid, racial discrimination, and the liberation of all peoples under colonial domination and alien subjugation. It's in this context in October 1975 that Somalia, on behalf of a coalition of states, introduced an amendment to the Decade Against Racism, Resolution 2157, introduced in the um, third committee, proposed that the word Zionism be inserted into the Decade Against Racism wherever apartheid, colonialism, and racial discrimination appeared. Two weeks later, about, Somalia withdrew the amendment only to submit a more robust amendment, resolution 2159, that not only moved to insert Zionism into the same places, but now was backed by all of the regional conferences throughout the uh, summer of 1975, convened at the International Women's Conference in Mexico, at the um, Organization of Islamic Conference in Jeddah, at the Organization of African Unity in Kampala, at the Non-Align Movement convening in Lima, Peru, where each of these four regional international and regional conference, uh, conferences concluded that Zionism was a form of racism and racial discrimination. So this was clearly a movement across um, the globe that then permeated to the top at the UN. What we find in um, the third committee documents, and so this is also in a forthcoming um, work that I have in a, a volume to be that is being co-edited by Lana um, Tatur and Ronit Lenten. Um, I look at the third committee documents as well as the General Assembly plenary debates um, of how this was discussed. And I find that there are there are at least three ways that members of the United Nations um, theorized Zionism or uh, created a racial theory of Zionism in this time. The strands are anti-imperialist, domestic discrimination, which is the one we're most familiar with today, um, and, and supremacist ideology. So just to say that anti-imperialism um, was the most fervent in 1975. Domestic discrimination is the one we tend to associate with racism today. And supremacist Zionism as supremacist ideology is as controversial today as it was then. And that's what we'll um, look at. So as to the first, um, the self-identified third world um, considered the denial of Arab-Palestinian sovereignty like its denial amongst all colonized people a racial matter. The League of Nations mandate system established after the First World War had predicated eligibility for sovereignty on proximity to European models of government and society. Um, and this is um, laid out quite brilliantly, but in the work of Antony Enke and others of, of the third world approaches to international law. An observation of the subjugation of colonized people throughout the 1930s, including the League's uh, role in sustaining it, Black Anglophone revolutionary scholars theorized that colonialism represented a dual structure of enslavement and international racial hierarchy. W.E.B. Du Bois explained that this racial capitalist structure was um, subjected colonized peoples to conditions of unfreedom for, quote, the benefit of the white people of the world, end quote. In 1960, in its capacity as an automatic majority at the UN, the non-aligned bloc successfully condemned colonialism as an illegitimate system of governance and established that self-determination was tantamount to national liberation. 
third world nations and nation states also considered Israel's establishment as an imperial imposition that effectively divided the African and Asian continents from one another without their participation, buy-in, or acquiescence. This analysis crystallized further as Israel aligned itself with other imperial powers, particularly South Africa, but also Portugal and the United States during this time. So this anti-imperialist thread, thread, and you know, colonialism as racism is the one that animates the third world the most and, 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 and creates cohesion amongst them. But another widely accepted critique of Zionism is that it's a form of racial discrimination. And here, and this becomes the one that's most accepted today and reflected in the Human Rights Watch report, for example, which is that regardless of intent, that the outcome is, that Israel distinguishes between its um, Jewish Israelis and all others, um, particularly Palestinians, and that this kind of racism features across all societies and it, and it can be dismantled through juridical strategies. Um, this of course fails to consider the colonial nature um, of Zionism and what animates it and what undergirds this racial discrimination, not only as an outcome, but as a something that's just and righteous as argued um, by uh, political Zionists. So this brings us to our third and most controversial topic, which is that, that, is that Zionism is a form of, uh, is a supremacist ideology. Now this is articulated um, most clearly by Fayez Sayer, a Palestinian academic. He's also the director of the PLO Research Center at the time. He represents the Kuwaiti delegation to the United Nations and is the engine behind 3379. He's careful to show that beyond its colonial practice, Zionism is racist. And he focuses on three pillars that make it such. One, racial se segregation, racial exclusiveness and racial supremacy. Um, Sayyid points to the writings of leading Zionists to illuminate how self-segregation within an exclusive Jewish state is an aversion to assimilation within non-Jewish societies. He then demonstrates how racial exclusivity, which is also a form of racial purity, is the force that propels Palestinian removal and precludes cohabitation with them. Finally, Sayyid concludes that segregation and exclusivity make possible the manifestation of Jewish superiority, fundamentally rooted in the belief that Jews are God's chosen people. Sayyid and his peers are well aware that the concept of a Jewish race is a cornerstone of secular European anti-Semitism. Europe's racialized exclusion of Jews was predicated on Orientalist conception of Jews as backward, dirty, religious, and unfit for modernity. It is precisely what led to Nazi insistence, among others, that Jews cannot be integrated into national society, thus rendering them ineligible for whiteness and exogenous by definition. As Edward Said would later put it, quote, the militant concept of a Jewish race derived itself not simply from the age-old persecution of Jews in Christian Europe, but from the racial topologies of Gobineau, Stuart Chamberlain, and Renan. In a companion pamphlet at this time, in 1965, Palestinian scholar Hassan Saab critiques Eastern European Zionists for seeking the revival of a Jewish nation rather than defense of the rights of individual Jews. In response to anti-Semitism, he dismisses Zionist concept of a Jewish race as a myth on par with the concept of a German race. Um, he highlights how racial consciousness led both ideologies to believe in, quote, a special historic de uh, destiny. And although the dead, quote, the deadly struggle between Zionism and Nazism 
should have made such similarities unthinkable, anti-Semitism, Zionism, and Nazism were various forms of nationalism and racism nurtured in a similar geography and in the same intellectual climate. Hence, and ironically, Saab highlights that both anti-Semites and Zionists believe that Jewish integration um, is an impossibility and Jews must have a state of their own. In the third committee and later in the General Assembly, it is this uncomfortable and disturbing connection that made claim that Zionism is racism so controversial. Even among the resolution's most fervent proponents, support for it reflected a belief that Zionism is a bedfellow of imperialism and or that Palestinians endured discrimination at the hands of Israel, but the flashpoint remained whether Zionism was indeed a form of racism. The US ambassador to the United Nations, Patrick Moynihan at the time summed up this dissonance very angrily when he said to the plenary, whatever Zionism may be, it is not and cannot be a form of racism. He then cited the Oxford Dictionary and the Webster's new third new international dictionary to define racism as a bio, uh, biological distinction that stratifies humanity and affords a particular group superior status with the right to dominate others. He goes on to show that Zionism is a strictly political movement born in the late 19th century in the context of the upsurge of national, which gives birth to the na Jewish national liberation movement who are, whose members are defined by belief rather than by birth. Zionist Moynihan explains are Jews self-defined as anyone born to a Jewish mother. Um, and he continues that this is an absolutely crucial fact. Anyone who converted to Ju Judaism, Moynihan's emphasis on Jewish conversion is meant to show that unlike other categories, uh, enumerated in the International Convention for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, Jewish identity is not a biological category. He goes on to highlight the racial stocks, Middle Eastern and Black Jews to demonstrate that Israel is actually racially diverse so that there cannot be a single Jewish race to speak of. Now here I wanna point you to the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination, which, which is a deep source of the controversy that continues to this day for failure to be able to articulate what is race, what is racism. The convention doesn't define race or racism, but does define racial discrimination. As in, and as you'll see, here is the uh, clause that defines racial discrimination. What you get is that this, this, this definition compounds the ambiguity over the meaning of race first by distinguishing it from other immutable categories, namely color, descent, or ethnic origin, and second, by suggesting that a state can racially discriminate on a basis other than race. The convention deliberately does not enumerate any particular forms of racism with the singular exception of apartheid. And what's ironic about all this is that the impetus for the drafting of the ICERD was actually anti-Semitic outbreaks in Germany at the time. It is what launches, it is what propels the desire to draft a, a, a convention against racism, which was met with controversy at the drafting stage. There was broad agreement that anti-Semitism constituted a form of racism, but a lot of controversy over whether or not to also name Nazism, to also name Zionism, how it would be named and what clause it would be named. And ultimately, anti-Semitism doesn't get named in the convention against racism. And instead, the final convention um, bifurcated uh, convention against racism, which is what we see here, and a separate convention on religious freedom.
where anti-Semitism is named. The lack of a definition of race and racism created civic, significant room for political maneuver, as well as genuine confusion in the 1975 UN deliberations. In his capacity as the representative of Kuwait, Sayer repeatedly and tirelessly made the case against Zionism. He responded to Moynihan when he pointed to the ISRAD's expansive definition to say that it could be based on racism can be based on descent as well as ethnic and national origin. He continued that Zionist ideology is racist, that Jews are not merely a faith, but are sutured and united by membership in an ethnic community that had the right to create an exclusive state in the place of another people. He then said that if you cannot show that Zionists sought to, that wanted um, Jews to be considered a matter of race, it would be impossible to speak of racism. And then to answer his own challenge, he cites Zionist um, thinkers and leaders, including uh, the founder of political Zionism, Theodor Herzl, to show that the Zionist conception of Jewishness, quote, had nothing to do with religion. It was the racial link that made a Jew a Jew, thereby responding directly to Moynihan that this was not a, a uh, an immutable category, that it was not something that was based on birth, but instead was merely a matter of, con uh, of conversion and political decision. As for diverse racial stocks, um, Sayer explained that racism is like a cancer that defines containment. And once Zionism had racialized non-Jews in Palestine, it soon came to draw a color line or a racial line among Jews themselves, Far from establishing racial diversity, as argued by Ambassador Moynihan, the subjugation of Middle Eastern and Black Jews exposed the, quote, Zionist myth of one Jewish people and demonstrated the supremacy of the white Jewish establishment. Significantly, Sayer emphasized that unlike anti-Semitism, political Zionism referred to the juridical policy embodied by an actual state. Indeed, while all states practice racism, Israel was among a minority that defined itself upon that basis. And here is a primary distinction, and one that I'm sure will come up in Q&A by, by those who want to say, but all states are racist. The United States is racist. Brazil is racist. Canada, yes, all states are racist, Ra are, are, are um, presumptively racist. Israel define, defines itself upon that distinction in ways that many other states are attempting to do today under the banner of democracy. Right. When Richard Spencer says that he wants to follow the model of Israel in order, you know, for, for, for the future of European sovereignty so that, you know, the U.S. can be declared a white state. White, right. That is through a democratic pathway or the Hindutva pathway of India being a place where it's righteous to, that it belong firstly and foremostly to Hindu Indians. This is not unique, but the ability to define a country upon that discrimination and the fact that we uphold and protect it is quite unique. Um, when the declaration for action finally came to vote, when this this was very controversial, the there were a number of procedural maneuvers. I'm, there was a split within amongst Black African states, the, the, the large majority of them supported this and so on and so forth. I'm happy to discuss that, but the, but the ultimately um, the resolution, the amendment to um, amend uh, the, decade, the decade against racism passed with a strong majority of 72 to 35 with 32 abstentions. The PLO would rescind the resolution in 1991 as a precondition for entering into the Oslo peace process. So we enter into Oslo. That where, where I showed you, um, we began what lays the pathway for, for permanent Palestinian autonomy um, and occupation. 
um, much, so I, I argue that Oslo has become our sovereignty, a Palestinian sovereignty trap. And I borrow from indigenous scholarship on this issue. A number of indigenous scholars in North America have highlighted how sovereignty as, as a pathway to freedom has actually created a condition of permanent subjugation. So I borrow from that thinking, um, Audra Simpson, um, Glenn Coltard, um, Nick Estes, and others to basically show Keolani um, Kaunui to show that a Palestinian sovereignty trap is the permanent condition of proving eligibility for self-rule to a settler sovereign in the hopes of achieving independence, but rewarded only with limited privileges, ad hoc reprieves, and greater authority to police Palestinians for the sake of protecting Israelis. More significant perhaps is how the bilateral structure of the political negotiations framed as peacemaking obfuscated the very power dynamics that define the so-called conflict and cast Palestinian resistance in all of its forms. BDS, um, mass protests, the Gaza March of Return, uh, legal advocacy as terroristic. The 1990s neoliberal apex of US global hegemony in a supposed post-colonial era did not provide the fertile ground for critiquing Zionism. And there seemed to exist a broad chasm between the structural critique of Zionism and the fortress that Oslo had built to insulate Israel. The road back to the gates of this portrait fortress have been laid by meticulous analysis of laws, policies, jurisprudence, decrees, maps, municipal plans, water distribution inequities, urban planning documents, statistics of mortality, social death, as well as charting the rights that flow from distinct juridical statuses like nationality and citizenship as shown at the beginning of this presentation and submitted by the Badi Legal Resource Center. Incredible and efficacious as these interventions have been, They've lacked the ability to breach the fortress walls and to grapple with Zionist ideology and not merely Israeli state governance. Emphasis on governance creates the illusion that Israel's regime of discrimination can be remedied through reform, inclusion, and formal equality. Liberal solutions to answer a liberal critique. But Palestinian critics have insisted and continue to insist that they do not simply seek to democratize the uh, settler colony, but to decolonize it through an explicit disruption of Zionist claims and Zionist prerogatives. Legal analyses in the post-Oslo era have by definition been limited in how far they can go here. They have, however, carved open the space for newer generations of Palestinian thinkers and organic intellectuals to make a form of an analytic renewal and return to the radical and unapologetic Palestinian um, tradition of anti-racist language of the 1960s and 70s, re-emphasizing Zionism as a settler colonial structure with a racial logic expressed through apartheid laws and institutions. These analyses have centered settler colonialism as a structure and indigenous resurgence as a site of study and a mode of resistance. So this would be obviously I, another book, <laughs> and certainly an entirely other lecture. I just wanna show that I, I've mapped out what I what I term between the two intifadas, the collapse of the Oslo process, which I, I claim collapsed at the collapse of the Camp David talks um, in 2000, and then the siege of Yasser Arafat and, and the Al-Aqsa Intifada, or what's known as the Al-Aqsa Intifada, the second Palestine Intifada that lasted to 2005. That marked the end of Oslo, I think, the end of the peace process. Everything since then 
has been a farcical attempt to keep it up on stilts, which has basically offered Israel a liberal veneer in order to continue its um, settler colonial expansion and entrenchment. But notice that what happens in between is the steady and incremental scaffolding that leads us to the present, specifically the Intifada of Unity, which we see the apex of in May 2021, beginning at the flashpoint of Sheikh Jarrah, but spreading throughout all Palestinian geographies in the region, as well as in, in, in the diaspora. Um, in, in the course of this, what, 16 years or 21 years, however you map it, I map out four phenomena that I think are the most significant um, in changing the discourse of breaching off those fortress walls so that we're, we're able to critique Zionism, which brings us to 2021 and Palestinians themselves squarely critiquing Zionism, providing that theory yet again as activist proxies, as an intellectual practice, here where we see that Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah, in the rest of, of, of Nablus, in Beta, in, in Khalil, in Nilid, in Nasre, in Naqab, in, in, in Gaza, in the diaspora, are telling us one thing, which is that there, uh, our condition of subjugation is a singular condition, despite the violent geographical and juridical um, demarcations, and that this is a matter of overcoming Zionism rather than overcoming the, the what become this disaggregated conflicts um, meant to mute and permanently subjugate Palestinians. And as um, Palestinians say, or as the manifesto says, <clears throat> long live a united Palestine, long live the Intifada of unity which brings us now to the close of my talk. And just a couple of points here, I'm gonna stop share. Can I stop share? How oh, does one stop share? Oh, I've stopped share, but I'm still here. Okay, so which brings us, I just want to end by highlighting a couple of things. So I, I wanna emphasize that I don't think the controversy is whether or not there's apartheid. There is apartheid. Right? There's controversy amongst the camp who agree that there's apartheid of whether or not the issue is governance or ideological, and hence the chasm I mapped out between the Palestinian intellectual tradition or a decolonial tradition and a liberal tradition that wants to resolve this through equality or, or you know, uh, juridical frameworks. There is another issue, which is um, what are we doing with the race question? The race question remains quite open and controversial, very unresolved. Um, just pointing to the Beit Salem report that was released in 2021. Beit Salem, the Israeli human rights organization that also concluded that Israel oversees an apartheid regime for the sake of Jewish supremacy was clear to distinguish that it wasn't racist. It said in its, it said in its report that Israel, um, uh, that, that unlike South Africa where quote, the division was based on race and skin color. In Israel, it's based on nationality and ethnicity, thereby insisting that nationality and ethnicity are not forms of racism. So they conclude that there's an apartheid without racism. So it still leaves open to question, how are we to deal with the racist question, with the question of race? Um, 
which remains you know, something that scholars and activists are pointing to. There are many ways to answer this question. I try attempt to, to deal with it. Lana Tantur, obviously, um, Shirin Say Ali, Rena Barakat, a number of other scholars, um, Nur Juda and her work, um, Tariq Radi, a number of other scholars, Nadia Abul Hajj, who have been doing this work and continue to do this work, Elia Zrik, Raif Zrik. Um, so the work is there and it's continuing to be grappled and now actually accentuated um, because of black uprising and what we can think about in terms of, you know, how to, what does anti-blackness have to do with these, this, these forms of racism as well within Palestinian society. The other outstanding question is, what do legal strategies have to do with it? And here, I'll just end that whatever legal strategies we pursue will be limited. They will be tactical and they will be limited. What we've seen at the ICC so far is not a lot of promise. This has a lot to do with the shortcomings of international criminal law altogether. It has to do with the fact that um, there has been no submission, even by Palestinian advocates in any of the Palestinian petitions that Israel oversees the singular apartheid regimes. It has been charged with apartheid, but only within um, the Palestinian territories and not across all of the territories. So there's a limitation in that respect. There's a hesitance within the Palestinian legal advocacy community um, in that regard. And there's a tremendous risk. It's understandable why. This is going to be a very political movement forward, even getting the ICC to acknowledge that Palestine has jurisdiction to, to submit a petition took decades of advocacy, right? And to overcome ongoing efforts, right? That have included the Trump administration threatening um, the prosecutor, um, that withdrawing of funds. It seems to be the ICC will be between a rock and a hard place um, because of its politicized nature, but this is just as much an implication of, you know, and, and um, a damnation of international criminal law as it is of the structure of the International Criminal Court, which um, I just wanna highlight, irrespective, we should continue to think about merely as a tactic and a site, one site of this battle. Um, I argue along with John Reynolds, who I mentioned earlier, um, we argue that we, you know, the ICC should be used as a place to actually open up the, the, the discussion altogether, right? To, to really challenge the entire system and the shortcomings. As Christopher Gevers shows, apartheid was never meant to be prosecuted because you cannot prosecute a system under international criminal law. You can only prosecute individuals. So how is it that you can prosecute apartheid um, in this case? And there is actually no precedent where apartheid has been prosecuted, which brings us to the present state that we're in, um, which I just, you know, just want to emphasize, yes, this is complex and confusing and heavy and, and multi-layered, but is also not unique to Palestinians, but is, is really emblematic of, of a human condition and of challenges of our time across the world, though I will um, insist that this is um, the apartheid of our time and one that we full well have the capacity to dismantle. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nora, for the brilliant lecture. We have lots of questions, um, but I, I'll give you a, a moment to breathe and combine my first question, which corresponds to uh, a question from the floor by Enas Murray. Uh, my question comes at the precise point that you left us about the possibilities of mobilizing 
international law, in particular international criminal law and human rights law, for the project that you described as decolonization. So to, um, I understand your point about strategy, uh, but I do wonder, for example, with the Human Rights Watch report, we had the designation of apartheid, but as you said, the report leaves out the framework in which you are operating, which is one of designating uh, settler colonialism. So is this about Human Rights Watch? Its shortcomings as a liberal human rights organization, what you called uh, the frame of governance versus the frame of ideology. So I just wanted to pick up a little bit on this framework of governance. Isn't that what characterizes the international legal order uh, altogether rather than the kind of ideology critique and the critique of settler colonialism that a decolonial framework would um, call for? And in this context, how is it possible to build international solidarity? I'm going back to the first question ANS Murray. Uh, if we adopt a settler colonial framework, the question seems to say, then the possibilities of building international solidarity might be increased uh, through working with scholars and activists who also adopt that anti-colonial framework. So what would you say to this question? Yeah, I, well, first of all, thank you for asking me, I think we're at least four questions, not one. Let me try to address kind of, so just to enumerate these questions. One is about, um, the utility of international law writ large, given that international law in, in, in many senses has enshrined power and the status quo of power and a racial hierarchy within the international legal system. So what, what potential does it have for its dismantlement? Another one is, is this question about, you know, is this really an issue with Human Rights Watch? What's, what, um, am, I, am I actually pointing fingers anywhere? And then I guess three questions Oh, no, no, there are four questions. The third question, well, three and four are connected. The third question being around what is the utility of the settler colonial critique and its relationship to this and what do Palestinians have to do with it? So onto the first question, let me just say in sum that I think I agree with the critique that international law is a site of violence and is one that is constituted through a sordid colonial history um, initially international law develops in the crucible of, of imperialism to expand empire and specifically to, you know, to expand for, first imperial expansion onto indigenous lands in order to, you know, uh, facilitate the pummeling and, and, and the takings of those lands, later to facilitate the transatlantic slave trade and to facilitate that trade, to then, then also facilitate you know, the, the, the division of different colonial geographies and native lands across the you know, global south. And so this is, this is what international law was created to do in its development. It has not necessarily been democratized. We see that both um, is in, in, its, in its structure, the structure which maintains power very 
explicitly, I think, and most vividly in the UN Security Council in the concentration of, um, you know, some sort of coercive authority with amongst the five um, UN veto holding members in the Security Council, the permanent members, um, but also in some sort of content that we can see looking very, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the Rome statute um, as it's been, you know, taken apart by scholars like Kamari Maxine Clark, who shows us that even in even in the Rome statute, the crimes, um, the core crimes that can be prosecuted are all crimes that would absolve colonial powers and um, slave um, economies from any kind of accountability through um, temporal jurisdiction. Um, and otherwise, right? But also I wanna say that in content, content has changed over time as we've seen um, as uh, colonized peoples have come to constitute an automatic majority at the UN General Assembly, they also became a source of lawmaking and that lawmaking created the 1960 uh, resolution condemning colonialism and resolution 1514. It created the authority that basically um, a conferred soldier status upon guerrilla combatants that transformed them from criminal terrorists into actual soldiers with the right to kill and be killed so that the Palestinians have shown how they had lawmaking authority in order to create an alternative to 242 and otherwise, even this resolution 3379. All of that to say is that um, while I you know, acknowledge this, you know, the cynical underside of law. I also believe that it's in, in some cases inescapable, much like economy, you know, all, all asymmetries that govern our lives, the economy, right? Asymmetries in, in, in military power, asymmetries in um, um, political power, that these asymmetries are real and yet we engage with them, we grapple with them. The idea is how do we turn our adversaries' strengths into weaknesses and our weaknesses into strengths in the process, and more importantly, how not to have faith in any of the tactics that we use, because the only faith that we can have is actually in people's movements. It's actually in the movement work that even gives shape to the laws and its potential. So for example, Palestinians, if they're going to, to use the law, have, must develop a political strategy, a cohesive political strategy, and one that right now um, I read so many of these documents that is not obtaining. <laughs> and the reason is even um, a schism amongst Palestinians themselves, the Palestinian official leadership, which is remains intent on a statehood tract, regardless if that state, you know, is a tiny piece of land they can stick a, a, a flag into, right? Versus what we see organically develop and has been our latent Palestinian leadership in, in, in the manifesto of dignity and hope of those who are pushing for a decolonial future. These are two separate tracks. So to think that now we're going to have a legal strategy, I think the legal strategy is impaired not by the asymmetries of the law, those most significantly, those, those have impact, but frankly, by what Palestinians are doing. What Palestinians are doing and how they can reshape the law for its own purposes. And we see this controversy very clearly in the submission to the ICC, where there is no agreement, even on, even on the parameters of, of apartheid. So the two other questions really quickly um, are governance and ideology. This is not a problem of Human Rights Watch. I'm not pointing. I think what Human Rights Watch was 
quite significant. In fact, they make a complete 180 because in 2001, Human Rights Watch actually condemned the Palestinian grassroots movement and its allies when it um, attended the World Conference Against Racism in Durban, South Africa, and thought that the naming of Zionism as racism was, was quite, uh, uh, as apartheid, um, or Israel as apartheid was quite abhorrent. And so the fact that they, I think Human Rights Watch and other organizations see the writing on the wall, if they do not jump ship now, they will be remembered in history as apartheid apologists, right? That's the shift that we're seeing now. It's a moment to save themselves from the scourge of that history, which is also not a condemnation of HRW employees, many of you know who have been trying to push for this change for decades. And in fact, because of Human Rights Watch, it's now because it's the largest liberal organ, mainstream or human rights organization, it's given permission for many, many um, people, including members of US Congress, to call Israel an apartheid regime, which hadn't before been possible. So there is utility even in this liberal framework, right? Um, it's just how we use it. Finally, what about settler colonialism? One of the questions that was presented over and over to me by you know, those who sympathize with, with Palestinians and agree that it's a settler colonial framework is that settler colonialism as a framework leads us to a dead end because it basically presents this incommensurability between Zionist sovereignty and Palestinian sovereignty, right? Now, that I think that lacks a bit of imagination to understand that um, decolonialism is a practice of imagination, worlds possible. Our, our present world is not an inevitability. In fact, it's a, it's a reflection of, of Western hegemony over modes of governance and society, ones that we have seen, quite frankly, fail in most colonial nations that have obliterated a lot of indigenous practices that are probably optimal um, and that we see being resurrected in the practices of indigenous resurgence. Um, you know, some people, when I think of other, um, other settler colonial geographies like Hawaii, and I think of the Hula as indigenous resurgence in you know, the resistance against the building of the 30 meter telescope on the Mauna Kea, right? These are, these are constant practices that insist that this history, the history of colonization is not a linear one whereby the indigenous body becomes a primordial body that's been passed by modernity, but is one that continues to exist that continues to challenge um, society and its current makeup and also continues to offer alternatives uh, for that future. And one of those alternatives, um, often those alternatives are presented in blueprints as we see in the Red Nations offering for the Red New Deal, which not only conceives of a way to avert uh, uh, climate catastrophe, but insists that climate, you know, the aversion of climate catastrophe goes hand in hand with decolonization Right, um, and oftentimes it's it's not seen in in in, in blueprints, but is, is seen in practice, as we've seen um, in different geographies, in communities that have turned you know abject, rejected geographies into life, as the Zapata have done in the south um, of Mexico, the Zapatista, um, um, as as Palestinians continue to do um, in their geographies and offer. This is difficult because it's not a silver bullet. And you know that's why partition is so popular for people because partition is simple. Okay, there's a problem, you rip it in half, divide things for people. And, and I think that we have this misconception that these easy solutions are in fact easy, number one. 
They're definitely not easy. But number two, more significant than that, they're not smart. They don't work. They're not viable. So it's precisely in the complexity that we have to grapple and in the work of, of you know, decolonial imaginations, the mapping projects that Palestinians have done, Zohrot and Bedil have done that work, um, other mapping projects, I mentioned Nurjuda, her work looks at that. You know, it's ways of thinking beyond just the present of thinking into um, possible horizons. Thank you so much, Nora, for that detailed um, response. Um, I have a question here from Dr. Claire Moon of LSE Human Rights. Uh, she's asking, could you say a little about anti-post-Zionist Jewish thought to show something of how the critique of Zionism comes both from within Jewish communities as well as Palestinian ones? Uh, so that's question one. And I had another question here. I'm scrolling down at the same time about the PA. This is from Saif Abdin. Uh, this person is asking, can the PA's pursuit of recognition for the state of Palestine as it exists at law in the West Bank and Gaza Strip be seen as legitimization of Bandustans? Is it wrong for Palestinian advocates to support international recognition of the state of Palestine? I have a lot of questions here about the praxis of international solidarity. So let me- So maybe I'll make my answers more short then, because it sounds like folks are less interested in this explication and more interested in, you know, like, what, what are your thoughts on this? Really quickly to the, to the question about anti-Zionist thought, right? Uh, amongst Jewish community, I mean, this is the thought that is in fact, one that's been buried by a revisionist history now, which tries to claim that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Some of the most fervent anti-Zionists are Jews who opposed the emergence of Zionism and saw it precisely as a chauvinistic response that internalized um, Jewish exclusion um, and, and failed to overcome um, anti-Semitism altogether, but instead was predicated upon it. We see that, um, I, I don't know if, if, if the bibliography is what's necessary for this thought, but, but suffice it to say that that's, you know, even in contemporary thinkers um, uh, and amongst allies, we see that amongst um, a number of, 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 of um, Jewish anti-Zionist thinkers who insist that yes, there is anti-Semitism. Yes, we can be a Jewish community, not merely you know, a faith-based, not merely a group based on religion, but one that's sutured together as a people, because we conceive of ourselves as such, and can also be opposed to the establishment of an exclusive state that has to be maintained through these garrison borders. But there are alternatives. What are those alternatives? Why are we impeded from considering them? Think of even the Bundist movement that wanted us to consider, you know, the alternative to, to the, the, the proper response to Nazism is actually a class-based response that sought to create class-based solidarity in order, to over, in order to overcome nationalism. Nationalism continues to be one of the most powerful forms of mobilization amongst peoples because it's so crude and so simple. Right, but it's also exclusionary, quite often patriarchal, and very violent as well. Right, so there are limitations to this. Um, 
And so thank you to the person who answered that question. But obviously we are, we are in, you know, we are in alignment. There's this new anthology um, that has been put out by, um, by, by friends, Esther Farman, Farm, Farmer, uh, Ro Rosalind Pacheski, I write the foreword for this, titled A Land um, with a People, right? And it's, it's an entire book of, of um, Jewish authors who basically write about their pathway either to oppose anti-Semitism or, or, or sorry, their, to oppose Zionism or their resistance to Zionism all their life. Um, and by Palestinians who are writing about Zionism from the standpoint of its victims. We were always there, right? This is part of imagining that decolonial future. Um, what about the rec recognition of a Palestinian state? Uh, okay, so this is complicated. I do not think that the movement and the advocacy to recognize a Palestinian state is ipso facto bad. I would not oppose it just as a matter of principle and as a headline. I do, however, take issue with this political strategy that the political that the Palestinian official leadership has pursued in doing so, right? Because here it comes down to the detail. If it was used merely as a tactic in order to garner and to curry support for the Palestinian cause, in order to then, you know, use international available international law tactically, I think that it it's useful. In fact, it's the recognition of the Palestinian state by the General Assembly that makes possible um, ICC jurisdiction today. At the same time, the, Pal the Palestinian official leadership refused to push this within the Security Council in order to demonstrate that the US opposed Palestinian state uh, membership at all costs, which would have created a controversy, right? It's that lack of willingness for confrontation. It's a lack of willingness to engage in a politics of resistance as opposed to a politics of acquiescence that for me creates the problem. So I don't see a problem in the recognition of the Palestinian state, but I do see a problem in this leadership. This leadership has proved itself, frankly, um, illegitimate. It doesn't have the support of its people, certainly not um, in the aftermath of, of the murder of journalist Nasser Bennat without any accountability, certainly not without um, an accountable ele um, electoral process, even if it's not a you know voting process, some other form of recognition to demonstrate support, certainly not when it's beholden to external um, external forces for its revenue streams as opposed and therefore becomes more accountable to other states than it is to its own people. Certainly not when it's not pursuing a politics of resistance. Certainly not when it's not endorsed BDS even after 16 years. Certainly not when it's taking the phones, its security forces are taking the phones of its Palestinian women who are protesting in the streets to release texts and photos in order to shame them so that they no longer participate uh, politically. So I, there's, it has no legitimacy to pursue a program of liberation, which we are in dire need of. So it's less about the theoretical question of whether or not we should pursue the state and more about the question, who are we entrusting to pursue that program? Thank you very much, Nora. Uh, we have a question here from uh, one of our students, a master's students in political sociology, Evan Forrest. This person is asking, do you see a shift in the mainstream understanding of Zionism in discourse around the 1970s? 
going from anti-imperialism to domestic discrimination as being in conjunction with the changing character of the Palestinian movement, or are there any, uh, other factors? Why did this change happen, in other words, from anti-imperialism to discrimination? What a great question. Thank you so much for that. So my, the, the short answer is, is that racism, at one, um, anti-imperialism, even as a framework, has seemed to become a bit anachronistic in the present. We don't see imperialism in the way that it was vividly on display in the 1970s, um, you know, manifested in explicit Western hegemony and domination, right? At that point, there are national armed liberation movements who are fighting to end colonial domination and who see the establishment of self-determination in the form of national independence as the predicate element in order to then launch a broader and more ambitious project against Western imperialism. I would recommend um, Adon Gatachu's work on the rise and fall of self-determination in this regard. This is basically a dream interrupted and unrealized. So I, but, but imperialism is alive and well, and we see it, I think, manifest locally. I think that that would be the place that we should search for it, to identify it, to understand it. Um, so one side of it is to think about the militarization of law enforcement, right? How is it that US police have become increasingly adapted to either military equipment or military um, tactics in the policing of local populations um, that are suited for enemy populations, right? So what, what, is, what does that tell us about state violence? What does that tell us about the circulation of carceral and military technologies? What does that tell us about the racialization of domestic populations that subjects them to, as, as external populations and even lends itself to um, a colonial framework, right? And so I, but that is lost. That is lost in a world where the U.S. has risen um, as a, you know a uni, you know in a unipolar world as 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 the most powerful um, military and economic force in the world, though not for long. All empires fall and will fade. Um, and so, what then? But what is the, so? That's one piece of it. The fact that it's not as vivid. The other piece of it, however, you're this idea, what about this domestication? The domestication was also always on, on the table. The threat of racism as being, um, you know, as being seen as an international issue um, and the desire to domesticate it was, was immediate upon even the birthing of the apartheid convention, which did not, you know, the internationalization, even recognizing white supremacy as an international concept, right? is one that gets buried in the domesticated framework. So now it's not a problem of global white supremacy, but it becomes a problem of these different regimes. Um, and so I think that these projects have happened in tandem in a way that obscures how racism is actually inflected um, in international law and inflected um, in international governance as well. It's the, the way that we've seen it right and and we've taken issue with it in present i think is a result of both movement work tremendous movement work right we see that movement work in transnational solidarity black palestine transnational solidarity palestinian indigenous transnational solidarity certainly um black uprising in general has created for us and put before us you know the mandate to continue to grapple with racism right 
um, even in, uh, even after its de jure um, dismantlement. Um, so that's one piece. But the other piece is, frankly, the failure of the liberal approach to democratization, right? These liberal approaches, the idea that the liberal solutions like um, Palestinian state would somehow contain um, Zionist supremacy, or the idea that equal voting and democratic rights in the United States would 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 answer, um, you know, the the anti black, you know, and 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 um, address anti blackness in the United States. I think it's the limitations of those programs that have shown themselves to be wholly and completely inadequate. People tried them; they prevailed. The liberal approaches prevailed, and we've seen the limits of those liberal approaches. I think we saw it the most vividly in 2014, when during the tenure of a black president in the United States, we see the occupation of Ferguson, right? And the containment of, of mass protests using um, military tactics, curfew, tanks, um, um, checkpoints um, in Ferguson. And at the same time that the Palestinian state, the apex of it is basically the circumscription of Gaza, through electric militarized borders where they just became become policed and contained better. So it's both the response, the resistance to it, but also the limits of this liberal approach that have shown themselves to be futile. They don't work. They don't work. And so now we're at we're we're at a place where we, I think, have to grapple with racism, um, racism as, as a colonial structure, at least as a co-constitutive structure. Of, of colonialism that continues to, to shape our lives. Thank you, Nora. Um, I think we have time for one more question. Um, um, you could use this question as a, a board, I suppose it's quite suggestive and broad. Uh, Sarah Ruler from uh, University of Saigon, Germany asks, why do you think is that the international community often blocks out Palestinians as a people and as civilians and only focuses on Hamas as a terrorist group versus the state of Israel. Why is that the case? I mean, this is multifaceted, right? And I don't wanna, I don't, I don't wanna take it lightly. It's actually quite serious. Um, I think the one answer and one very honest answer is that Israeli advocacy is very effective. They organize better. They lobby more. They are, they don't control anything. None of these anti-Semitic conspiracies. Okay. They just, you know, I, I even through my anecdotal experience as an advocate, right? They just out-organize um, through, you know, through the they see it as a more important, you know, role. Look at, you know, its diplomatic core, what it does, the advocacy, the fact that the Palestinian diplomatic core in the midst of the May uprising, when we saw for the first time a vivid sea change, right, didn't immediately push for sanctions upon Israel and every place that Palestinians have a diplomat speaks so loudly, right, to the inefficacy of Palestinian advocacy and the counterpart, you know, the, um, the distinction to Israeli advocacy, or the fact that at this point, 
We are not, you know, in, in terms of Palestinian advocacy, not overturning in our entire diplomatic core in order to appoint our youngest, our brightest, our most energetic, our most articulate, our most visionary, the organizers, to then replace an outdated, you know, diplomatic core with all due respect to their previous service speaks so loudly, right? This is this is just a matter of effort. And then there's also obviously entrenched, you know, interests, entrenched military interests, interests, economic interests. There's investment in Israel as not just, you know, a high-tech hub, but in Israel as the place to, to experiment new laws of war on Palestinians, new weapons of war, new technologies of war. This is an entire industry, one that's quite expansive and that you, you have a lot of, um, a, a lot of financial interests who are invested in that future. Then you have um, an entrenched um, discourse around um, Palestine that just makes it more acceptable to be anti-Palestinian. We are in an era where you could say, you can, somebody, if we were in an audience, can, you know, throw things at me and, and call me a terrorist and accuse me, accuse my, you know, my biological body of being, you know, uh, a way to procreate more ter terrorists, I mean, gendered, racial, violence, what have you, right? No one would be held to account. It remains acceptable until we make it unacceptable, right? And to make it unacceptable is also that, that ongoing and continuous protest. And I think that we have seen, we have seen significant change. Um, the the fact, uh, the possibility of this lecture is one indication of it. Thank you, Noura. Um, thank you uh, for a brilliant talk, for your courage, for speaking truth, and for overall brilliance and commitment to the Palestinian liberation movement. So with that, uh, I end the broadcast here and you'll find the link on YouTube soon. Thank you very much to the audience members. Thank you to everyone who raised the question and thank you, Nora. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.